0: when you look back some of the toughest things that you went through knocked you onto another rail track or another path that you wouldn't necessarily have gone and actually it's delivered some of the most amazing things so you just learn to take the rough with the smooth and just to, to to keep going and to ride it out and to keep finding ways
1: the architects of business on joe in partnership with ey entrepreneur of the year telling the inspirational stories behind ireland's most successful entrepreneurs Hello, and you're welcome back to the Architects of Business on Joe, made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year, where you'll hear the inspirational stories of some of Ireland's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Sonia Lennon, and today I am speaking with the fabulous Sammy Leslie, Irish hotelier and trustee of the Castle Leslie Estate in County Monaghan. Castle Leslie is one of the last great Irish castle estates still in the hands of its founding family. And Sammy has managed to take this family heirloom and turn it into one of the most unique and enchanting destinations in Ireland. Sammy, we were just reminiscing, and I think the first time I met you in the wonderful castle, Leslie, was probably about 25 years ago when uh, I was there in my capacity as a stylist with Barry McCall doing a beautiful shoot, which still holds up because, uh, I suppose, everything about it was so magical. Um, You grew up in a castle. What was that like? I think children
0: don't have a sense of perspective whatever their life is is nor is the norm it's only when other people say things back to you um, I do remember coming home from school one day and we, in our art class we were asked to count the number of paintings in our house and of course I went well I lost count after a hundred and then you were just put down as you know a brat that was bragging and um, and then you kind of went hmm but doesn't everybody have. you know. It's, so there's one side of it is that. And then, of course, this whole ridiculous thing we're brought up with the princess syndrome of, you know, if you live in a castle, you, if you're a princess, you have to live in a castle. And I went home and I said, mum and dad, you, if I live in a castle, I must be a princess and you must be kings and queens. And they went, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. And then you get the other side of a, a big old crumbly house on the border. And, and those photographs, I think, will attest to it's 28,000 square feet and, and you know, it, from the Second World War onwards, it just sort of slowly crumbled and there were great ideas to do things in the 60s and then the troubles kicked in and we are right on the border. So we just kind of withdrew to a few rooms that were warm enough, but I do understand what brutal cold is where there's more, you know, it's colder inside the house than outside and there's frost on the inside of the bedrooms and you put your overcoat on at night to leg down a long corridor to try and find the one bathroom in the house and... You get in sheets and you dry run like this in the sheets to to, to get, create fiction to warm them up because they're so just damp and cold when you get into them. But so, uh, but that's normal. That's fun. That's so was was, me it,
1: was it was it tough then? Was was
0: there? No, it was just it was just life, and you you got on with it. And it teaches you, you know, great coping skills and not to be precious about life. And yeah, and,
1: and the bed that, always I... the bed always warms up at some point. Absolutely, absolutely, but. Where where was the money coming from to support the family at that stage? Um,
0: through sales of assets. I mean, the running joke was it was like the Marx Brothers film Go West, where they chop up the train to put in the engine to get to California. Um, and that literally, it was asset stripping because that's the only thing that they could do. We, you know, we were on the border during the Troubles. It wasn't Dad couldn't do any of the amazing tourist projects that he wanted to do. And he just thought if they manage to stay in, it's this thing of stickability. If I manage to ride out the tough times long enough, when the tide turns, we'll still be standing and we can do something. And that was very much his attitude. Our family motto is grip fast. So
1: that's what he did. And that is, I think, at the core of every entrepreneur, that that tenacity, that sticking power. If you don't have that, you, you really you don't have much. You no, know, you don't. And you ha- anybody can do well in an
0: upturn. It's There will be times when it gets rough and the times when it'll all go, I was going to say tits up, but I probably can't say that. Said it out. now,
1: Sammy. <laughs> in the ether.
0: Um, there will be times when the world just turns upside down. And if you don't have the passion and drive and determination, you won't ride that tough times out. And we've come through some very scary times for an awful lot of people. And we just have to make sure that we don't do it
1: again. So the tenacity was baked into into your your being, uh, and yet the, the the business of Castle Leslie was was at an absolute standstill. Who yeah. who was it in those formative years that that influenced you apart from obviously your your dad and that that quick fast attitude?
0: I, we always have this debate of whether entrepreneurs are born or formed or nurtured. Um, and I think the other thing for me was a huge lifesaver was horses. So I went through nine schools by 15 and wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia till I was 24. Nine
1: schools by the time you were 15? Yeah.
0: And I went to, I was in a convent in done more my last, it was my second last school. Hunger strikes kicked off. It wasn't safe to travel. So I ended up uh, being pulled out before Easter and then going to St. Columbus in Dublin and being the first, the only Border in my year, and there were four girls in my year, and eventually I went, Dad, you can't afford this. I want to ride horses for a living. I'm leaving schools. So I got a job um, in a yard training and uh, and quit. There's no point. And so the the and that was because of the dyslexia, the, the nine schools? Yes, and there's a thing in England called school vision. Um, and I happened to bump into somebody in the bar at home who just their opticians in the North had won a prize for this whole school vision project. And there's a thing around uh, left eye or right eye dominance. Um, and my left eye is very dominant and it won't follow a word across a page. And if it hits a word it doesn't understand, it shoots back to the beginning, the writing blurs and, and everything disappears on a on a page. So I read physically very differently as well. And I now have understand what it is, and I've got new glasses and people write things in a way that I can read. Um, so that starts to make an awful lot of Difference. So I have my own internal language. I have my own text message language that uh, my friends understand. I get my reports written in a certain way that I can read. But I'm lucky that I'm a boss and I can say, this I'm, is how we do things around is, here. Yeah, this is if you want me to be able to read this, you need to come onto my side of the page. So yeah, I, there's still a lot of people out there struggling with it and still a lot of kids not getting tested for the dominance of one eye or even one ear um, as, as to which way you absorb the information but thankfully we're, we're getting there huge strides are being
1: made so i mean i, I this is just i love this because i i uh, was talking recently about you know the whole idea of diversity and inclusion mm. in terms of if we really do want to be diverse and inclusive yeah. we have to accept that there isn't only one route to success and, Absolutely. and and your story is a great example you you quit school at 14 15 um to, 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 ride horses. to ride horses. But, you know,
0: Caroline Keeling and I would joke about this quite a lot because she's a, you know, a, a dyslexic horsey girl as well. Horses are incredible teachers. One, they're very humbling, so they see everybody as equal. It doesn't matter whether you won a gold medal yesterday or have never sat on a horse before. They react to you the same. They see you as an equal. Um, they have a very a uh, logical way of learning and thinking and you need to understand their logic and it's, and it's an unspoken language it's a lot through um voice tone and weight and body language so it teaches an awful lot about um understanding another person or another entity communication relationship building teamwork patience you can't lose All your the temper good stuff. but there does come a point sometimes we have to go no you can't do that but it has to be done in a very clean, fair, logical way because otherwise you just confuse them and put them backwards. So I think for me, um, riding horses for all those years taught me a huge amount, and it also teaches a huge amount of preservation. My dream was to get in an Irish squad, to get on the juniors or, or young riders for three-day eventing. Um, got long-listed, but as far as I, uh, far as I got. Um, the other thing it teaches you was um, I set a yard up my first business when I was 18, um, buying and selling horses. You know, And when you come from a background like mine, you have a little target sign on your head that goes sucker. And everybody tries to fleece you. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's, you know, feed prices, hay prices, horse prices, lorry prices. So you get quite cute at trying to see who's trying to pull a fast one and quite good. The at- art of negotiation. And just going, eh, you just put your foot in it, I won't do business with you, actually. So over the years, I've built up an incredible team of, of builders that I've worked with. And, you know, 20 years to 30 years later, all still there because I know they're good guys and they'll do exactly what needs to be done and they're going to be straight and fair about it. And you respect each other, trust each and other. And you respect each other. So, you know, that, you know, we're stealing on the border.
1: Yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah you 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 learn you learned a lot about you know the human condition. Yeah. and you know you get to the point where we you just
1: want to do good business with with good people. so the business was in there always. That, 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 that sort of, uh, you know, the sale and the deal, that was always in there, obviously.
0: Yeah, it was. And and, and also because then that allowed you to do something else. I mean, money isn't a, an end. Money isn't the, the be all and end all. It's the all. conduit to the it, next bit. Exactly. It's the fuel that allows you to take the journey. So absolutely. And I just couldn't watch the place crumble and fall apart. There are very... Few old historic estates left in what we would call founding families, because we're not the original families. You know, the original families go right back to the Ice Age when Ireland was first settled. So, you know, the families that founded an estate and built a village and... So the holding goes back that far? The 1600s. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. But we know Navan Forts beside us is 6,000 years old, so we know it's a very ancient area. There have been an awful lot of people before us.
1: Absolutely. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about, about the, the importance of this, uh, of the estate uh, on a global scale. I mean, this, this is a really seriously important heritage site. Um, well, it's quite
0: unusual in that it's probably the best example of um, an estate in a state village that was remodelled after the famine. Um, it's one of the last ones where there's still a very strong working relationship between the village and the estate. And after uh, Christina Leslie ran the estate during the famine, she lost her husband. She had seven children under the age of 14. Um, she cancelled the farm rents. She built soup kitchens. She did um, built the famine walls, so they got paid plus fed. And then she her, was a
1: social entrepreneur. Absolutely.
0: And then her son, um, everybody was terrified by what had happened and... It, it was the most horrible and horrendous time and he brought over a croft from Scotland called David Patton and said, okay, let's see how we can make the best out of the lands that we have. So everybody made more on their farms and then, of course, he made more money and then bought more land and did the same thing. and he did things like building a factory for furniture making and taught a whole lieu whole of young craftsmen how to make really good furniture. And we're doing research to see if was that the spawn that started off the modern furniture making industry. Amazing. You know, built schools, built pumped water systems, first flushing toilets in a village, first flushing toilets in a train station. You know, Glassock was actually a very new and improved and very modern village for its time. Um, so... He was incredibly entrepreneurial and we're doing more and more research about what he did. And My dad had incredible ideas about trying just to share the place, just the tranquility and the beauty. And he worked with Robert Trent Jones to design a golf course and a student of Corbusier's called Margaritas, who designed this incredible five-star hotel that was all sort of steps Ooh. going down to the lake. I, with hanging these are bonds. plans that you have? These were all plans that we have. He put together a big consortium of backers between America and the UK. And then things started to trigger both in Caledon and Derry. And the backers just all went, let's wait for six months and see what happens. And uh, sure the rest is a terrible history, as we know. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, they're all there. That's amazing. But I will not be building a golf course in case you're <laughs> going to ask. One of my terrible fantasies is about getting a very large cart horse with very big feet on a very wet day and galloping straight down the middle of a golf course. I'd love
1: to say we'd <laughs> planned one for you, but we no, haven't. We haven't. No. So let's go back a little bit to the story of you. Mm-hmm. So you were 18, you had your own business, you were mm-hmm. trading horses um, and your own uh, horse riding school as well. Yeah. Is that right? And teaching students. Yeah. And, yeah. So, so what was the next, Phase, what was the next chapter?
0: When I got to, um, I qualified at tw- 18 in the UK and I was the youngest, uh, one of the youngest in Ireland and the UK to get to that level. Qualified? As a riding instructor. As a riding instructor. Um, so I phoned home to say, Yay, I've qualified. And dad said, Great, I've just sold the equestrian centre. It's like, OK. Because I'd planned to go on to Germany and, and try and get to the next level. So it's like, OK, well, I'll come home and mark my turf and set up a stables in the set, because state had three stable yards. Um, so I set it up, uh, my yard up in the farmyard. As much to mark my turf and go... This I is am, mine. And I am coming home. My father's six children with three different mothers, so and I'm number five, um, and everybody else would want to go on and do their own things in other fields. And I think Dad was wondering, would anybody ever come home? So I came home for three years, and by 21 I went... I started to realise, actually, I was quite young. Um, Too young to take on the burden. Well, not, it was as much that if I didn't get away now, I wouldn't get the experience you get when you travel. I wouldn't see the rest of the world. Yeah. So I was very determined. My mother's family uh, were born in Rajasthan and Pakistan. Um, my grandmother grew up in the Philippines and, and Samoa, she, cause her, and they were the first, um, some of the first Westerners into the Forbidden City in China. My other grandmother was American. So I had quite a mixed heritage family-wise. That needed discovery. Absolutely. So um, off, I, off I headed. And the great thing is if you can wait tables, work in a bar, muck out horses, ride horses and teach. Transferable though, all over the world. Absolutely. So off I went amazing. Yeah, it was great. I went for three years. um, And after a year and a half, I was in Australia and dad um, got a little bit of money. And he phoned the three daughters and said, if you want your third level education, go for it now. So one sister did uh, English literature in in Southampton. One sister did film school, blagged her way into film school because she didn't know to have any exams either. And I went to hotel school in Switzerland.
1: Amazing. So yeah. so you knew really at this stage that you were coming home and that there was a big job ahead of you.
0: Yes, but the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So, you, you know, just get your head down and you do it step by step. So, yeah, didn't really quite think I'd have got this far by now.
1: <laughs> Isn't that wonderful to be able to say that?
0: Well, my whole thing was I wanted to buy the equestrian centre back. So if there was something I didn't really want to do, like when I went bungee jumping and I got up there and I went my legs are tied together, it's 500 feet down. This really wasn't a very good idea. However. However, (laughs) if I want to buy the equestrian centre back, jump. And that was always my do it. That was my thing that pushed me to take that step. And also with horses, you learn that the, the fear of fear itself is what stops you it's not actually
1: the doing. Bunch jumping's incredibly safe. I, I, I feel so passionately about that. And I know um, a lot of people who are um, armchair entrepreneurs and budding entrepreneurs mm. uh, listen to the show and um, are inspired by wonderful guests like you. And that is it. It's the fear that holds us back so much. Absolutely. And with horses, one of the things
0: you're always taught that um, you got on the horse that you were most worried about first, if there's a particular jump you weren't comfortable with, you did it. And if you decide you're going to do it, you did it. There was no backing out because if you went to do it and then tried once or twice and it failed and then chickened, you've just now taught your horse to stop or yeah. to run out or to refuse. And you've just created a new norm. Yes. So, there is, you know, the, the norm is we're going this way. That is a jump. You're getting under over or through it because I know you've got the talent to do it and that's where we're going.
1: I love that.
0: So, um, yeah, horses were incredible teachers. They really are. Amazing.
1: So I know, you, so you formally went to hotel school, mm. um, but as, as part of your travels, I, I, I gather you learned an awful lot about um, customer service and, and, and how to be treated as a guest. Well, I think that's one of the things is you really have to keep
0: stepping back into the guests' shoes because you're on two sides of the same, you know, I, one of my favourite uh, sketches, drawings is two people looking at a number on the ground and it's six one person's perspective and nine from the other you know we're looking at the same thing from two different sides and you really need to understand the customers' experience to be able to design it and create it
1: and and deliver it so and and throw off your, your own uh preconceptions around what you're delivering because I think that trips us up sometimes as well
0: oh uh, yeah absolutely because we're we're looking at it we're looking at it and it says six and they're looking at it and it says nine and we're like no we need to both look at it from the same side yeah. so um I experienced anything and everything I could. I ate as much street food as I possibly could because food is a huge part of the offering up in Castle Leslie, both, you know, through Connors Bar, which is incredibly busy. And then we've got snaffles. We do all of the banqueting, incredible breakfasts. Um, so, yeah, we've won a lot of breakfast awards because it should be as important to meal as everything else. I firmly believe that in the execution. I would much rather deliver a well-made pot of tea with really well-made bread and proper slice of bread and butter than you know something An more. Emotion
1: fan- of bacon. Yeah, <laughs> something that
0: just doesn't quite work. I think we can get carried away yeah. sometimes in, in in you know how much we, we play with our food. So, what is so the philosophy?
1: The, what is in terms of the customer experience? What is the philosophy? If of you're as going as to
0: as? if you're going to do it, do it right, or don't bother. You know, everything has to be done with, with, a, with a, a, a deep heart because hospitality is a, an emotive business. People come to us because they want an emotional experience. They want to feel cared for and treasured and that they are important and that we genuinely want to make their time with us special. And I'm blessed with my team. I have a fabulous CEO, Brian Baldwin, and an incredible team. And it's, it's genuine in, your, in their heart. They really, really want to look after the customer.
1: So how many work in, in the, the mini village that is Castle Leslie? <laughs> it will go up to just around 200 now over the summer. Um, so yeah, quite a gang. And there, I'm assuming that there must be a lot of uh, local employment then within the village. Huge local
0: lot. employment. And what's lovely to see is the amount of kids that come through, train up move on to really, you know, move up to other countries and, and do great things, but also the amount of kids that train up with us, and that gets them through university. But it also gives them a skill that's transferable. And, again, hospitality is like horses. It teaches you a work ethic. It teaches you communication. It teaches you teamwork. It teaches that awareness of what's happening around you. You know, it's it's a very good... Uh, It teaches you an awful lot of skills, but it's also transferable anywhere in the world. Perfect grounding. Absolutely. It's one of the best things to have in your back pocket if you want to go... Travelling.
1: And have you seen then people coming through your yeah. team that you're intensely proud of that have gone on to do other things?
0: Oh, strings of them, absolutely strings of them. With one young girl who, as uh, mother was from Siberia, it, it, there was a lot of stuff going on with her in her old job. We managed to, to get her out of that position. Um, the daughter started with us as, as a waitress and she's now a senior consultant in the UK. She got one of the top leaving results. And, you know, it's amazing just to see. Them pick up and grow and and grow go places and do brilliant things. So, yeah, we, it's quite we, a family of them. We reckon we're about twelve. We're trying to count how many have been through within or, that one family. We, no, well, we, there was only one child in that family. But in general, how many kids have worked with us and trained up? And some stay on in the trade, which is in with us, which is mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, so, you know, some move on, some leave the trade, but you have it in their back pockets. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I'd say twelve, fourteen hundred 1,400 kids have come up through us. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. Because I know that you are also as passionate as your ancestors about social entrepreneurship yeah. and, and and your, I suppose, duty of care to those around you to make sure that you're supporting the community and, and, and beyond. Tell us a little bit. We were always taught
0: that the only thing you have any control over in life is what you think, what you do, what you feel. And it's your responsibility to try and do the best by yourself and the best by those around you. That's all we can do. Um, so it doesn't matter if I've got a glass of water and you don't, and I can decide whether I share my water with you or not. But actually, I think we have a duty to try and do the best that we can in in every situation, whether it's something small like sharing glass of water or something huge like trying to set up a, a foundation or a charity that Caroline Keeling and I are involved in, which is around stopping FGM. You know. 200 million kids or uh, girls are at risk. About 2 million are cut a year. Around 10% just bleed to death. It's probably one of the biggest social uh, silent killers of young girls that there is, and it's one of the few that we can do something about. So this is back to the Entrepreneur of the Year. I met Caroline through Entrepreneur of the Year. She's become one of my best buddies and we've had all sorts of adventures together and there is some incredibly kind-hearted and good-hearted people in the Entrepreneur of the Year programme quietly doing great things behind the scenes. So, uh,
1: and is that, do you think, um, a, a like-mindedness of people who are uh, good, capable executors people who can do things make things happen and that part of that mindset is that you can't ignore other things that need to be done
0: no there are absolutely there's a whole load of people that can't there are some people that that can um, there are some people that are very unaware or don't see outside the, the wider circle or don't use the talents they have to try and you know make the world a, make the world a better place I think it's fascinating to see the, how the kids and the students have stood up and said we need to start looking after our planet and how much that shifted you know the the the, populace, the narrative the narrative and we've seen the results in you know in the last elections so it's amazing how you know individual voices can really change things when they step up so
1: being nominated then for yeah. the entrepreneur of the year program with EY how did that feel i was it's it was fantastic
0: because i don't think of myself as a conventional business person. I don't wear a suit, and um, yeah, it was it was great. But I, what I love
1: about it um, the good news, by the way, is that nobody else who sits on this chair ever thinks of themselves in in those sort of traditional terms. So you're you're in good company. Well, that's, but, that, <laughs> but that's what I
0: love about it because I was a bit intrepid, you know, because I don't have a sort of formal education and all of the rest, and you know, didn't come up the normal business routes and da 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 da. da. Um, and then when you get there, you just realise there's a whole group of like-minded people who are all slightly, wonderfully barking mad in in one way in that, you know, it, it's not they don't see outside the box, is, is they don't even know what a box is, exactly. you know. It's that huge expanse of thinking that then can get, you know, down to delivering an actual project. So what sort of impacts did the Entrepreneur of the Year programme have on the business? I think there's two. I think one is the the recognition that actually you know, because people would look at big old houses and and especially young girl trying to do this. And at the beginning, people wouldn't take you seriously and would think you're a little bit mad. So it was kind of a verification of actually that there is a logic and a a reason behind all of this. Um, The other part has been the alumni, which has been... Fabulous! Just that network of like-minded people, and you go on a retreat, or you go to an event, or you go to a dinner, and your head is out here uh, with ideas and thinking, and then you have to sort of put yourself back together the next. You know, when you go back to the 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 real world, but it's that free thinking, it's that validation that it's that anything is possible. It is absolutely meeting that network of like-minded people. With incredible ideas and incredible ambitions, and actually they deliver on them. And some of the dinners with Entrepreneur of the years are gas crackled together. I bet. And there was one. We should
1: be podcasting those. Oh I yeah, know.
0: <laughs> there was one of my favourites. Was we were sitting at a dinner and there were two lads and they were bantering away. And if you just listen to the conversation, it was like two lads down the cattle market trading cattle. They were trading bullocks, and uh, then when you start to listen to the words, they were trading secondhand satellites in space. Oh, I
1: love it. It was just, yeah, well, why can't you? I mean, they're up there. Somebody needs to trade them. Well, that is a sufficiently high note to take us to the break. The Architects of Business on Joel. In partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. So, Sammy, we're back to talk a little bit more about your story um, with the wonderful Castle Leslie. I, I've, been, I've been a few times. Sorry. It is an unbelievably magical place. Uh, it takes your breath away, doesn't it? It is.
0: I mean, we have the, the uh, Ice Age to thank because Monaghan is drumlin' country and you just get this beautiful little sort of egg basket of hills and woods and, and lakes. Um, and the old bishop, John Leslie, in the 1600s just fell in love with the place um, and just wanted to retire there. And he bought it in 1664, married a young girl and had 14 children. <laughs>
1: As you do. As bishops <laughs> yes. So wh- what was the point at which you developed the vision for Castle Leslie.
0: Um, I think it's much more understanding the vision because I'm very aware that the incredible landscape that we see and the incredible buildings were all put there before I was there. So there's a lot of, of understanding other people's visions and understanding the landscape and the topography and, and the architecture and their visions. And then going, OK, well, how do we enhance it. And we would have a saying of uh, precious and workhorse. So a, a workhorse is a building or, or a thing that can work hard and generate income and that to support the precious, because, you know, there are things that are very precious in terms of our own physical structure, like archives, or things, you know, like restoring a pineapple house or banana house that so will never cover its costs but it's still something I want to do. And there's it's wonderful stories behind it. It's so funny because that, that,
1: that terminology, so uh, with Brendan Courtney in Lennon Courtney, yeah. we talk about each collection being comprised of workhorses and show ponies. Yeah. And and it is it is that thing that you have to have both, you know.
0: Absolutely, you do. And, and in heritage, quite often, they are just there. There's something just very precious that needs to be looked after. Uh, and you can't have all the workhorses. Otherwise, it becomes very corporate and very yeah. commercial. And we might as well, with the greatest respect, be the Hilton Group. Yeah. You know, it's it's all about beds and money and, and
1: no heart and soul. So the business as it stands now, um, what what does it look like in terms of international visitors, in yeah. terms of what they're coming to do, how long they're staying? What, what are those choices? So about a third of our uh,
0: business is weddings and events. And you know when there's one in town and it's fabulous and it's a huge big party. And they either take the whole castle and the, the, the pleasure grounds or every now and again, the entire estate. The rest of it is leisure business, is people just coming to get away, to step out of our normal, mad, hectic, world and and just to be and to to wander and to totter and to, you know, have a pint in the bar and a long hot bath and read a book by, you know, read a book by the fireplace and go for long walks. And then if they want to do activities, lots of equestrian, go for carriage drives, go hot air ballooning. You know, there's lots and lots of other things for people to do. But I think more and more as our world gets more frenetic and more connected and moving at a faster pace, we need little bubbles that you can just step back out of and just be a human being and... Mm. Do really strange things like have a good conversation with the person? Did Imagine. You, yeah, <laughs> chat. You know, connect as human being to human being and human being to nature, and just slow down and before you step back Enjoy. onto the yeah before you step back onto the mad train.
1: And what about uh, international visitors then?
0: We're getting a lot more than we used to. The Border area wasn't high on the agenda. Um, Ireland's, uh, Tourism Ireland's work on the Ireland's Ancient East and Wild Atlantic Way has been fantastic. They're really understanding the sort of the emotive drivers why people come to Ireland. So we're getting a lot more people coming to us, which is from all over the world. The Equestrian Centre would have a global reach. So we have a family that comes from Hong Kong every year, brings our trainers. We people, the riding, people come riding holidays, they've always been more intrepid. So you bought it back. I bought it back. <laughs> I rebuilt it. So Equestrian Centre, yeah, they come from all over the world, but we also get a very strong home trade as well. Excellent. And, and how long did it take you to buy it back? Uh, Dad sold it in 1984 and I bought it back in 2004. And then 2006, we did some work on it. We built the Equestrian Centre and did new rooms. And at the we are just finishing off another 18 rooms at the moment. So it's very exciting. That it's must a,
1: feel so sweet.
0: Well, it's, we're at the carpet laying picture hanging and it's the last bit, as, as you know from design, where you have this all in your head and you're just putting all the bits of the jigsaw together and you're Beautiful. just hoping they all fit.
1: Beautiful. Um, so three weeks' time, we open our new rooms. Congratulations. Yeah. That's fantastic. I, I suppose it would be an injustice to say that everything is sweet and rosy because business is tough and hard for every entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, there had to have been low points where, where you thought, you know... It, this is not working.
0: There are always times we go, ah, oh, this isn't working. But, you know, we'd always have a, a belief that there's always an answer. You just have to go and find it. There's always a solution. And when you look back, some of the toughest things that you went through knocked you onto another rail track or another path that you wouldn't necessarily have gone. And actually it's delivered some of the most amazing things. So you just learn to take the rough with the smooth and just to, to, to keep going and to ride it out and to keep finding ways So, yeah, there's no such thing as something that's absolutely wrong or absolutely right. So what were the the tough times? Um, Well, the downturn was obviously obviously a tough time because rates got absolutely hammered um, by the economic situation and by all of the hotels in in Nama. Um, And on a personal level, uh, breast cancer was a bit of a pain in the butt. Um, But it turns out also, I've been in a hospital quite a bit in my 20s and 30s, that um, I also have MS. So I was diagnosed, I finished my breast cancer treatment to 11. Um, and when you're self-employed, you know, you hand a sick note over the desk and the other person just hands it back to you. You know, there is nobody to hand a sick note yeah. into. Um, and then um, I was diagnosed in 212. And that took a bit of adjustment because MS is one of these things that every single person's journey is different and it can move at different, different speeds. So it's taken me a while to tr- figure out Um, how to manage it and manage the drugs and stuff. So yeah, I'm on a twice weekly uh, drug, which means I, now I'm quite strict. So I inject on Wednesday, I'll sleep all day Thursday. I'll sort of come back to normal on Friday and then I'll get my uh, weekends. But we're incredibly lucky with the drugs that we have. You know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, my journey both with breast cancer and MS would be very, very different. So, yeah, we're very lucky we, we, we have
1: to be very grateful also for that baked-in tenacity, the the, the, the the piece of you that won't let go, because I think a lesser mortal could have just said, this is all too much. Well, no, I think also growing up on a farm and working with horses, you know, we have this fantasy belief
0: that our body should be perfect for our entire lives and, and always work. No, it doesn't. Mother Nature's inbuilt flaws in it and things happen and you just you deal with them. I worked with vets for years, so I think you end up with a very different way of... It's just another day in the office. It's just the beacon hospital, um, and the teamwork. The teams are
1: great, and they're really about this close to coming and applying for a job in Castle <laughs> Leslie right now. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have you <laughs> absolutely. So my next question is about succession planning. So, did yeah. you you inherited this business, whatever way you want to look at it. Uh, it, it it came through your bloodline and your history. Well, part
0: of it did, and an awful lot of it I bought back um, in different forms. I think I bought about fourteen different parcels back over the while. Wow! And there's a chunk more to chunk more to to do. But succession planning is fascinating because. The reason I think I've done okay is because it's my passion, and I wanted to do it. Historically, in big old houses, it was you know primogeniture, eldest son, which was daft because you halved your chances of success, Um, and you only had a certain number of things that you could actually do. There were only a certain number of careers fifty years ago. Now, the future generation have a hundred different things they can do. They can pretty much go anywhere in the world. So if somebody i've always said if somebody took on my position they have to do it because they really really want to do it and not because somebody has told them mm-hmm. they have to that doesn't work in family businesses and we've seen it time and time again in family businesses where somebody is doing something out of a sense of duty but not what they really want to do
1: it's it's not good for anybody at that stage is it
0: it's not it just at some point people are miserable or make each other miserable it doesn't it doesn't work in the long term so i've always been very clear Whoever steps up has to really want to do the job. So I've set the place up in a combination of um, a discretionary trust, which acts as the landlord, um, a foundation which will do the, the projects of greater public benefit, and hospitality, which is basically a social enterprise. I get my salary like everybody else does. Everything else goes back into it. So if somebody in the next generation wants to come and they can come as a work placement, we've had one of my nephews just come in as TY, uh, transition year. They can come in as, you know, transition year, they can come in as interns, they can learn the job and work their way up. They need five years experience to take on in a similar establishment to take on my role or they can come along and go, well, we love this skate lodge, can we turn it into a little condom crocheting factory or something? You know, they can do, apply and go, yes, I'd really like to do this, but there's no, it, what it's done is it's created a structure, I hope, that's there for the next 100-plus years. It's also created a series of opportunities, but people have to step up and take the opportunities. There are no handouts.
1: Fantastic. There
0: just isn't... I don't believe in... I don't believe in handouts. I don't think they do anybody any good either, so... So Hopefully. Is there a challenge then around
1: categorising what the
0: business is? There is at the moment because we've kind of broken a lot of the social norms around big old houses. You know, I'm actually legitimate under Irish law. I was adopted when I was 15. I, you know, I'm the girl, so I was the last person they thought would take this on. Um, we're still, uh, we're working um, on a report at the moment to look at founding families and how nearly 50% of them have disappeared in the last 30 years. You know, Hoth went last year, Kiladoon went last year. And if you look forward, these places are going to disappear pretty fast because unless you love what you're doing, they're they're, they're quite a handful. So we're looking at trying to get um, recognition of different structures to allow it to stay and not be seen as a pure commercial entity. We are very different to Ashford Castle, incredible five-star hotel, but it doesn't have the 350 years of, of living history behind it. The I mean, same as Ashford, Dromoland, you know, they are all stunning five-star hotels, but they're stunning five-star they're disconnected hotels. disconnected from their... their well, the purpose for being is for being a five-star hotel. Our purpose for being, of sharing, of, of providing accommodation and things for people to do is... Places like ours were built to entertain. We're doing it just on a, on a larger scale, but all of the income goes back into regenerating and repurchasing parts of the estate to pull it back together. So it's back to being one of the best examples of a remodelled Victorian estate in the country and one of the best examples of a living estate and village that work hand in hand together. It doesn't really happen anywhere else at the scale we're at. So you are unique in Ireland and, in, and
1: possibly beyond.
0: Um, and there's some great examples in the, in the UK, absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, we have to forget we've only half the population of Yorkshire, yeah. but it's trying to get that sort of recognition here. And it's actually, it's yeah. I, we're
1: and what very would that possible. recognition look like then? Because obviously, you've you've won the Oscar with the Entrepreneur of the Year award. Yeah. In terms of business, what what does the recognition look
0: like for for helping in the heritage world? Um, actually, go. This is a model that is sustainable, that does the right thing for the right. Purpose and can allow a place to succeed. We're looking one hundred years down the year. We've done a hundred year plan. Somebody a hundred year plan. Yeah, somebody. Yeah, but you see that <laughs> heritage moves very slowly. We have three hundred and fifty years of, of history at home. We have a thousand years of written history behind that, so it does move very slowly. A hundred years in heritage actually is not That's a very long time. So, I would hope then, you know, in a hundred years' time, if we haven't totally destroyed our own planet at that stage, that. Home will still be there. And not only have you got all the social history, you've got all the architecture, you've got all the amazing things to do and, and share, you've got an incredible bubble uh, uh, from an environmental point of view because there's our estate and two estates in Northern Ireland that beside each other, there's so about 5,000 acres of you know, wildlife and biodiversity that really, really needs protecting. I say there are these amazing little bubbles that work. Like a model village, the, yep.
1: the, whole, the whole area is almost a, a social project.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel very strongly about making sure that they that they survive. And that we also tell our difficult stories around power um, and whether you use it to do the right thing or you don't. And also about women's struggles. I mean, we finally got autonomy of our own bodies last year. Great. Absolutely. Um, but there was a girl in our village who... Uh, and went to a parade and a nice man gave her sweets and she ended up pregnant. And her name was Bella. Um, so because she was part of an estate, she was given a job for life. She was our, had, she became our uh, laundry mistress. She got a house for life. Her son got a job and he ended up becoming head forester. And I remember Davey when I was a young kid. And he'd always go, Miss Samantha, and tip the hat. He would never call me, never call me Sammy. But that was the difference because she was part of an estate. She got looked after as a young girl getting pregnant at 16 at a fair in another situation. I mean, we know all the horror stories of, you know, the laundries and the mother-baby homes and all of the rest. So there's some interesting stories to tell about women and post-1916, how our rights just went backwards and down the Swanee, whereas, you know, women's rights in the rest of the world continued. And we're now getting to a point where actually we're getting fairly close to... Equality
1: And isn't, isn't it wonderful to, to see yourself as part of this incredible network yeah. of Entrepreneur of the Year with EY uh, as an opportunity to, to amplify uh, social corrections, if you like?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, if, if you've got the opportunity, I think I should do
1: it. Absolutely. And, and I have one final question yes. just before we wrap up. And I ask everybody just in one sentence, why is Castle Leslie so successful?
0: Incredible team. Absolutely. Couldn't do anything unless I have an incredible team with me and behind me. And I'm incredibly lucky with them. I really am. And the great crack.
1: That always helps. <laughs> they are. Sammy, always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome, Sonia. Always lovely to see you.
1: Thanks for listening to Architects of Business on Joe, made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Thanks to all the team here at Maximum Studios. And of course, to my lovely guest, Sammy Leslie. Please go and subscribe to Architects of Business to get a brand new episode into your feed for free every fortnight. I'm Sonia Lennon, talk soon. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year, telling the inspirational stories behind Ireland's most successful entrepreneurs.